This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. We've given Mike Hogan the week off. He's still recovering from the Oscars, uh, as are many of us, I think. Uh, but it's funny, it's only been a week since the Oscars, and yet it feels like we're, we've moved on so fast. And we've got lots of other exciting stuff to talk about, like Captain Marvel. But first, there's a little bit of an Oscar hangover to deal with. There's been a lot of drama, at least on my Twitter feed over the weekend, about Steven Spielberg versus Netflix, which, when I wasn't paying a ton of attention, I just thought he'd like been calling out Netflix directly, and it's a lot more complicated situation than that. Uh, do either of you guys feel like you have a good grasp on what exactly is going on with Spielberg and the Academy and Netflix and what they're trying to do to maybe make it harder for Netflix to compete in next year's Oscars? Um, I can give it a whirl. Um, do it. I Help would, us. <laughs> I would say that Steven Spielberg, who is the representative for the director's branch on the governor's board, I believe, um, wanted to create a proposal to change a rule to make sure that any film eligible for an Oscar has to have a real four-week theatrical run in the theaters. And the reason I say real is I think that's more important than even the length of time in the theaters, because the obviously the impetus here is Roma, the fact that it won a bunch of Oscars, but was only in theaters for three weeks. And that theatrical run, as Nicole Sperling has talked about on this podcast and written about elsewhere, um, was a bit of a farce in that, you know, they, they bought out the few theaters that they released the films into, which meant that they didn't have to share their box office information. So much like the way that Netflix doesn't reveal its TV ratings, we didn't have any sort of box office info on Roma, how Roma did. And also, it's not like it had a real theatrical run. Like you, It was hard to see Roma in theaters during that. I think they released in 158 theaters. I think that's right. So... You know, what What Spielberg and, and the people who agree with Spielberg are pushing for is if we're going to confer Oscars on something and Oscars being, you know, a symbol of we recognize this as a film, this is a contribution to cinema, et cetera, et cetera, then that film needs to have that real genuine theatrical run as part of it, which doesn't sound, to my view, that unreasonable. What then happened is... The way it was written up, first I would say um, by Ann Thompson on IndieWire and then the people who aggregated uh, basically a comment she got from Amblin Entertainment about it, pitched it as 
Spielberg hates Netflix, Netflix versus Spielberg, blah, 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 which is not, I mean, I think really what Spielberg is after. It might be, but not, but not really. But then what happened is like when it seems like Spielberg is intent on destroying Netflix, what f- added fuel to that fire is that certain people on Twitter in the film community who have worked with Netflix saw it as an attack on their ability to tell their stories. I'm thinking chiefly of Ava DuVernay, who, you know, who has made films with Netflix, has an upcoming documentary with Netflix, and went on Twitter and basically said, you know, dear Academy, I hope you'll let, I'm not a member of the Governor's Board, but I th- hope you'll let filmmakers like me sort of state our case counter to whatever it is Spielberg wants to say here. And it sort of became this idea of, since Netflix does work to elevate a lot of marginalized voices, whether intentionally or by accident, just by the sheer dint of amount of stuff that they produce. Then it became this sort of conversation about gatekeeping. All of a sudden, Steven Spielberg and other old white men in Hollywood, once you stop young uh, women and filmmakers of color tell their stories on Netflix. And that's what it like muted into, which is like Netflix's dream. And then basically Netflix uh, released a statement in response being like, you know, we love cinema. We love, you know, providing this opportunity for filmmakers sort of thing. So that's my recap of, of what went down there. Yeah. Did Netflix I sort of posi- um, no, I think that was pretty thorough. But yeah. Netflix kind of positioned themselves as like defenders of cinema and the sort of, you know, um, you know, and then people kind of fired back at that saying, well, then if you love cinema so much, why do you only have 17 movies made before 1995 or whatever on your, I think that was someone exaggerating, but I don't know the actual numbers, but like Netflix kind of notoriously has a really bad catalog of older movies, which people worry about because you, at least you, you used to be able to get those at the video store. Now, you know, how do people access them? So it's been an interesting debate. One that also you, you mentioned David DuVernay, Germana, but, um, Paul Schrader, who wrote and directed First Reformed, uh, which is a huge critical hit in 2018, uh, Oscar nominee for screenplay, uh, and Sean Baker, who made The Florida Project and Tangerine, they kind of offered solutions that were somewhat similar in terms of like paying a little extra for a streaming service to be able to go see a movie in the theaters. Um, you know, and it was interesting, someone like Schrader, who's been in the business forever, kind of saying, look, you know, these models are changing. There needs to be some adaptation, you know, not just from the streaming services side, but from everyone else's. Um, And I think, I don't know, he seemed to lay out a pretty um, sober, reasonable um, solution or, or the beginning of a solution. Yeah, Paul Schrader's point I thought was really interesting that A24 really took their time with First Reform. They rolled it out really slowly. They played it all over the place, and it really grew in a way that many films don't. Like, it kind of it, it was went from kind of being an also-ran at Toronto in 2017 to being uh, this Oscar nominee. But that isn't really what they're asking Netflix to do. Like, that, I think that's a really good argument for having these traditional distributors still. But what back to what you said at the beginning, Joanna, what they're asking Netflix to do is to play their movies in theaters for four weeks. And as our old colleague Rebecca Keegan reported at The Hollywood Reporter, with The Irishman coming, Martin Scorsese really wants to insist on a theatrical release, so they were going to do something like that for The Irishman, at least, anyway. And I think the the gatekeeping question is interesting, but a little bit separate from this. Like, Netflix has the money to do these four-week theatrical runs if they want to qualify something for Oscars. They can do it 10 times, 100 times a year if they want to. And my feeling is that most likely they'll do it for The Romas and The Irishmans and 
the Ballad of Buster Scruggs and not necessarily for all the boys I loved before and still be able to keep their really successful model going. So while there's a lot of interesting conversations to have about Netflix, I think I'm with you, Joanna, that like, I think the Academy can ask whatever they want of Netflix if they want to submit their stuff for Oscars. I think when we first talked about doing this segment on the podcast, Katie, you know, I know you're on maternity leave and you were like, you can explain to me what's like what the Twitter conversation is. And I'm not saying that those two conversations are the same thing. I'm saying this is what the discourse, quote unquote, has evolved the conversation. Oh, no, I know. I know what you mean. It's like you throw Netflix into the Twitter chum and like 10 different conversations emerge every single time. I think it is fair to have a conversation about like, um, you know, I love the uh, cinematic experience. I think something that I was advocating for uh, amidst the Twitter discourse was like, I love going to the movies and in an ideal world doesn't often happen. People don't look at their phones or I love going to the movies and feeling people like laugh and cry and get scared around me. Like those are important movie going experiences for me. But what's true is that, you know, the cinema isn't as accessible to other people. You know, a lot of people responded and talked about how growing up, they didn't have the money to go to the movie theater all the time, or they didn't, um, you know, or they didn't have a movie, movie theaters in their town that played these movies. And so then they're like, because of the theatrical window that we're used to, the traditional model, they're months behind on the conversation. And I, th- I think it is worth re-examining like, I like the idea of, you know, a short theatrical window, a month doesn't seem unreasonable to me. But I also like the fact, I do like the fact that Netflix makes Aroma available, even though the ideal way to watch Roma is in the theaters. But like, you know, I, I think that it's it's a complicated issue, basically. And it, what might be true, and I hope it's not true, but what might be true is that we are going to see the theatrical model die out. That might be true. And I think that is what Spielberg is fighting to preserve more than just like simply blocking Netflix from winning Oscars. I don't think it's that pointed and malicious. I think it's more like, what can I do to make sure movie theaters are still a thing? And maybe maybe they won't be. Or maybe they'll become sort of like artifacts. Maybe uh, like the Alamo will be a thing, but all the other cineplexes won't be. I don't know. You know, I barely, whenever I go to the movie theater, I, with the general audience, it is rare that I see a, a theater full anymore. So, you know. I feel like the Netflix model of making movies available to everybody, like the way that they did with Roma, is never going to change. Like Netflix is going to be able to do that as much as they want. But the idea that the Academy would want to put rules on them to qualify for their awards, nothing else. It's not going to stop Netflix from doing what it wants to do. And if that is a way to make sure that movie theaters stay alive, I'm with you, Joanne. I think maybe they're going to die anyway. I feel like they can do whatever they want. Like, it might make them look a little bit stuck in the mud, but, like, you know, they're the Academy. They're not, like, on the vanguard of technology at any point in history, so why would they start now? It's also kind of an interesting game of chicken in that, like, they're really testing how much Netflix and, you know, maybe personally Ted Sarandos cares about awards. If they say, like, nope, sorry, you, you, you can do whatever the hell you want with your movies, but we're, we are not considering them for, like, these prestigious film awards, how much that will mean to Netflix, in, you know, even in the short term. And obviously it has meant a lot. They spent a ton on their campaign budget for uh, Roma. You know, and they're clearly, you know, gunning with uh, the Irishman and several other films that are coming out this year um, that would, you know, are seemingly prestige movies. But like in the long term, I think their business model and their sort of world domination plans are much more important than the Oscars. So I'll be curious to see how long the Academy's leverage lasts. 
I think the question of what qualifies for an Oscar and what qualifies for an Emmy is really interesting. I haven't like looked at what Netflix is trying to qualify for Emmys this year, but that line is just getting blurry and blurry, and there has to be rules at some point. This is also sort of a separate conversation, but I think that's going to get even more complicated in the next couple of years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, like if X Netflix movie is eligible, why isn't HBO's The Tale? You know, like it's such a weird, why is that an Emmy movie versus a Oscar movie? So it, yeah, I think you're right, Kitty, that like the distinction has already blurred so much just in our sort of everyday lives. And now these awards bodies are having to kind of come to terms with, um, you know, a landscape that's shifted under their feet. And maybe they could have been quicker to adapt to it a few years ago. But I, th- I think that a lot of people just didn't really see something like Netflix ever putting out something that would be worthy of awards consideration. So they just kind of ignored it. And now here it is causing an existential crisis here. Obviously, it's been having a problem. It's been a huge problem in Cannes because they they have much stricter rules about what's eligible and all that stuff. So, um, you know, it's funny that you said, you know, the Oscars just ended. It's like, no, but here we are already having this, (laughs) this conversation yet again. And it's only March. Something that I thought was kind of fascinating, I think it might have been in Rebecca Keegan's report on The Hollywood Reporter or maybe Ann Thompson's on IndieWire, that um, Ted Sarandos has lobbied several times to sit on the governor's board and they won't let him. So there is, you know, something... (laughs) so high school. You can't sit at our table. (laughs) Somewhat petty going on. Um, And what's also true is that a a couple theatrical distributors in the UK have made it that there used to be a deal where, like, if you were a BAFTA member, you could watch uh, films for free, maybe, at these theaters or something like that, and they're no longer honoring that after Roma won a bunch of BAFTAs this year. So it is is like theaters versus Netflix. And I don't, I mean, I don't know how much I can blame, like it might sound petty, but I don't know how much I can blame the theaters when this is, you know, it's like indie bookstores, not that, you know, whatever the major theater chains are indie bookstores, but indie bookstores versus Amazon. Like why would an indie bookstore want to do Amazon any favors when it's destroying their business? And this, you know, the same is true of like, People watching stuff on their phone, people watching stuff at home, people not going to the movie theater anymore. I mean, like, you know, I I, I don't like gatekeeping. I don't like barrier of entry. I like accessibility, but I also love the movie theater. So I feel I feel kind of conflicted about it. And what's also true is that, like, let's not be so gullible as to believe that the way in which Netflix is currently positioning itself as, like, this hero of marginalized voices is not also, like, a cynical marketing tactic on their part. Something that I was talking to um, Franklin Leonard of The Blacklist about on on Twitter is like, we both seem to agree that like, they released this great, this great promo Netflix did with um, Uzo Aduba from Orange is the New Black. And it's her sort of meandering in and out of some of the like landmark things that they had in 2018. So she's standing next to Hannah Gadsby before her stand-up routine, or she's in the bedroom of To All the Boys I Love Before. And she's talking about how important it is to have representation and not being the only one in the room and feeling seen. And it's all true. Like you can't argue like Netflix has done that. They have, you know, Orange is the New Black a alone years ago is landmark for representation for women and women of color and trans women, et cetera. And so you can't argue against Netflix doing this, but also the way in which they're promoting it is a cynical thing to do. I think both of those things are true. It's not like Netflix is the only place doing it. Like Hulu had Minding the Gap and has Shrill coming up. Like HBO has Insecure. It's not, Netflix definitely did break ground with Orange is a New Black, but they have made it so that other people can compete on those credentials. I think that's true. But but I think they do it, 
more and more bravely just by sheer dint once again of volume than other outlets do like i'm very yeah. wary of netflix generally but i i gotta give them that you know so if you guys were on the board of governors and spielberg showed up with this proposal would you vote <laughs> i would vote for it I, do you guys feel like you would hesitate i would vote for it to see what happens you know? <laughs> chaos reigns yeah you know because like this stuff is all relatively arbitrary you know they could we could if it doesn't doesn't work, you could undo it, you know. But I, I would just be curious to see how Netflix reacted to that. So yeah, I would I would say yes. Do you think the the obstacle for Netflix is it financial? Like why? There's why no Netflix, way it's financial, right? Yeah. So like, why would Netflix? Like, why does Netflix having a qualifying run for these films prevent them from backing all the women and and people of color and other creators that they have been backing. There's no, it's not like mutually exclusive, right? Or- no, and it's it's because they don't want to budge on that. You know, like they, I've said it before in the podcast. Well, I mean, it was something that Rebecca Keegan said to me was, you know, Amazon wants to play the game and Netflix wants to change it. And if they, I think that they're really reticent to let anyone else dictate how they release their content, you know, and obviously they've made some concessions here and there and might have to make more. But like, no, I don't think it's a financial thing. I think it's absolutely a pride thing. Yeah, what you said, Joanna, is where I start feeling really cynical about this. Like, having a four-week theatrical window will not keep them from making Ava DuVernay's next movie right. or Dee Reese's next movie. Like, those things are both things that Netflix does, but do not, one doesn't prevent the other, which is why I feel like the four weeks is a totally reasonable thing to ask. So I think if you step outside of what the debate became on Twitter, like... I think if you step outside the characterization, like I was actually disappointed, you know, like I want to support the media. I want to support my colleagues, but I was actually really disappointed when I was scrolling through all the coverage, trying to figure out how we got here. How did the, <laughs> how did this, how did this discussion get so mutated to what it became on Twitter? And then I just like looked at all the headlines and it's like Spielberg goes to war with Netflix. And I was like, is that really what we're talking about here? Like what, what another thing that I did find interesting though, that I, that I learned from reading all this coverage is that, um, Spielberg was a major backer for Green Book, which I somehow missed. But apparently he was behind the scenes pushing really hard for Green Book. I think Amblin produced it, didn't they? Yeah, I, do, I guess I just completely missed that connection. So that's fascinating. And, and people are using it to sort of reframe, again, Spielberg as like old Hollywood, which is so funny because I was I was watching a documentary documentary footage from years ago. I don't for some Spielberg project I was doing. I was watching some documentary footage from years ago. It was Spielberg finding out that Jaws had been snubbed at the Oscars. Oh, that's such and an amazing clip of video. I can't believe he so let them film him. Good because he's so mad and bitter, <laughs> and he's like, you know, he's basically accusing them of gatekeeping him and his newfangled blockbuster way. And it's just sort of like for him to then become the gatekeeper. I mean, that's just same as it ever was. But that's a that's a good clip to revisit um, while we're talking about this, I think. We'll be the gatekeeper someday. Sure. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter okay. 
I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. And we're the hosts of The Run-Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So the other big thing happening this week is there is another Marvel movie. It does feel like it's only been about 10 minutes since the last one, but we've got another one out here. And this one uh, is distinctive. Captain Marvel is the first Marvel movie uh, with a female lead. It's coming almost two years after Wonder Woman. So that's one thing that Marvel is kind of playing catch up on. And it stars Brie Larson, who is a very recent Best Actress winner, which is really interesting for our purposes. Captain Marvel is... Another one of the kind of movies that's a little bit bigger than the sum of its parts. It's like, you know, it's Marvel's first female superhero movie. Therefore, it's subject to a ton of online attention, both from people who really want it to be a vanguard and from the trolls who will show up to uh, knock it down. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes had to adjust its audience score process. I don't think entirely because of Captain Marvel, but maybe a lot because of it, because people already had their knives out for it. I just want to, like, start you guys with it as a movie. Does it survive the weight of all these expectations? Like, is it good as a movie to watch having gone through months and months of hype for this. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in my review, I, I kind of say that, like, of course, Marvel, you know, got a little greedy in that not only is it their first female-led movie, but it's also this kind of very self-indulgent origin story for, like, Nick Fury in a way, or, you know, like, it, it, they, they kind of can't help but but also sort of, you know, Marvel at their own sort of, you know, legacy this many films in. And I feel like in that Captain Marvel herself gets a little lost and I think that's partly because of Brie Larson's performance which isn't bad exactly it's just sort of it's a quiet performance like it's very it's not big it's not loud it's 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 like an indie film performance which is kind of makes sense because the film is directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck who made movies like Sugar and Half Nelson so they're kind of interesting choices to direct this big movie Brie Larson was a sort of I think odd casting choice, but I don't think it's not that it doesn't work. It's just not the movie maybe I was expecting. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, I liked it. Like these movies all kind of blur together for me. But I guess I the, the one thing that did stand out, which is a pretty big thing, was that like, oh, right, we've been watching a woman this entire time. Like she's the center of the story for the most part. And for that alone, I feel like it's, you know, it's worth seeking out. Yeah, I what's interesting about the Brie Larson casting is I completely agree. Like, I think it's not expected, but I think it works really well for the film that they ultimately want to tell. And, uh, you know, I interviewed, there was a bunch of different writers that worked on this project, but most of them women. And I interviewed a couple of them and they all said that the characterization of Carol Danvers changed after Brie Larson was cast in terms of like this notion of empathy as strength and all this other interesting stuff just sort of changed it from like, oh, this girl has to be 
badass and tough to like something a bit more nuanced, which I think Brie Larson is, um, you know, fully capable of pulling off. And I think, I think you're right, Richard, that, you know, the fact that Ryan Fleck and Anna Bowden directed this, like there's the sequence, I think I'm calling it the second act. It's hard to figure out where this, this film breaks in terms of acts, but there's a sequence of the film that to me feels like a, a Fleck and Bowden joint. Like it just feels like an indie quiet drama film. And that's incredible in a Marvel movie, I think. And I think it's an interesting choice for this movie. Um, I, I do want to, because, you know, Marvel sends me a, a check every month uh, to chill for them. I do want to mm-hmm. push back a little bit. Um, Katie, that's a joke, guys. Um, a little <laughs> bit, Katie, on, on what you said about, um, you know, DC getting the jump on them uh, by two years. That's that's both true, and uh, I will say with Wonder Woman, like, what DC has failed spectacularly at is weaving a larger narrative. You know, like, Wonder Woman, the film works, but then putting Wonder Woman in with the other films doesn't work, right? And so I think because Marvel's playing chess, you know, they they needed to drop Captain Marvel where they needed to drop her in order to make her fit with everything that they wanted to do. There have been like feints of them maybe putting her in earlier, but this is where it made sense for them to put her right before the big Avengers Endgame sort of thing. So it's like it, you if when you think about Marvel, which this might chafe uh, for some people who are like movies or movies or TV or TV, you have to think of it as like a part of the larger whole, or at least that's how I choose to think of it. Because she's got a big role in the next Avengers movie, right? Or she at least is in the next Avengers movie. That's the implication. I think what we'll find when that a film comes out is that a lot of the shots that were in the trailers that we saw at like at the Super Bowl, or whatever, had her digitally erased. God, they are so tricksy. I mean, Game of Thrones does the same. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) everyone does it. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I, I, something that I've been saying to people is that, like, when I walked out of watching this, and I watched it like randomly by myself at an LA screening with like a bunch of LA press that I don't know. Um, I walked up by myself and I was like, I liked that fine. And then I thought about it and I was like, no, I liked that more than fine. And then the next day I talked to several women who were at the Captain Marvel junket, like really thoughtful on film women. And I like realized that I loved it. And I was like, okay, all right, this is, this is something that I had to sit with me. And the same thing happened to me with Last Jedi. I had to like sit and think and discuss it before I just like landed with, I love this. So um, it's getting mixed reviews. There's also been a lot of like drama ramping up to it. I think ultimately it, it won't perform as well as Wonder Woman at the box office. I think it will always have people who think it was some kind of failure, but I think history will look, kindly on it the way that the first Captain America film I think came out and people were like what is this period piece I don't this is kind of whatever this is fine this is aggressively fine and that movie has really grown I think in people's estimation uh, in the larger MCU and I, I think Captain Marvel will do similarly so I could be wrong but I think so uh, Joanna, you said there's a whole section of the movie that feels like uh, a Bowden and Fleck movie, which was really exciting to me because I love their previous work. And I think until Black Panther, the sense with Marvel movies is that director's individuality got a little bit blurred out by the entire Marvel machine. Um, Richard, did you notice that too? Do you do you feel like there's a, there's personality in this from the directors? Oh yeah, I mean, I think I know what scene Joanna's referring to, but um, but like yeah, there, I mean, there's a, there's a part of the movie where it's like an actor in like full alien makeup 
just having a conversation with Brie Larson. <laughs> like, <laughs> and like they're outside and the light is sort of pretty and kind of like diffuse. And it's just kind of like, oh, this is really weird, but also kind of great. The camera goes to handheld, too. The camera goes to handheld, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'm like, what movie am I watching here? Yeah, and and there are a couple other scenes, especially early on, and they're they're quick, where where the movie just looks not, like, it doesn't have the kind of bright gleam of, you know, what we might think of, like, maybe a Russo Brothers uh, Marvel movie or something. And I think that that's really interesting. I think my question is whether, you know, your average Marvel fan will really take to that you know because it is kind of a a funny choice i mean the whole enterprise has been uh, a success partly because they've chosen their directors carefully and i think that even when best laid plans go to you know go away like edgar wright dropping out of ant-man um you know they find peyton reed and like he for what like he kind of was was an odd choice in in a way but he really worked and you know those movies are fun and 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 this year too you kind of start to see the reasoning behind hiring Bowden and Fleck to do it as the movie goes on, which is which is interesting. Um, so yeah, I hope that people enjoy that sort of smaller, handheld, intimate stuff uh, as much as I did. But, you know, again, it's a tougher sell than huge explosions and whatnot. There's also a moment where the... Um the film, whole film stops also for um, like a, a very like emotional moment from Lashana Lynch, who plays Maria Rambeau, who is um, Carol Danvers' best friend. And it's like, once again, I, I talked to that actress and she was like, I was certain that was going to get cut. <laughs> she was like, I'm so sure. No way this is going in a Marvel movie. And it's there. And I, I really value that that it's there. I think I, I think I'm surprised. Uh, by people who feel like this lacks emotional heft when I think it's one of the most emotional Marvel movies that I've seen. And I like I, I agree with you, Katie. That was like the bad reputation that Marvel had for a while in terms of its directors, um, especially coming off of the whole Edgar Wright kerfuffle. But I think what a lot of what changed that is James Gunn doing Guardians of the Galaxy, even though James Gunn is no longer working at Marvel, like him putting his very individualistic spin on this and what a wild success that was, I think emboldened them to hire like Taika Waititi to do Thor Ragnarok, Ryan Coogler to do Black Panther, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I think they are getting braver with their non like big Russo brother Avengers movies uh, with experimentation. And I think what's true is that we won't see as many of those big Avengers things once Endgame is over uh, in April. I think they're moving on to something else. They won't talk about what they're doing, but they're moving on to like something else. So they're not going to be as beholden to this big crossover snarled mess, you know, sort of thing. You think they're going to make more smaller standalone movies after Infinity War? I I have a hard, such a hard time imagining them uh, scaling down from that. That's sort of been what Kevin Feige has been implying that we're not, we're going to move away from trying to make every movie relate to another movie. I think that they found that it's just gotten too hard to hold all those strings together, you know? So it's not that, it's not like you're not going to see Thor and Hulk and Spider Man mix it up and this, you know, I think you're just going to see more one off issue sort of things rather than like plant the seeds for Thanos and Infinity Gauntlet for you know, six, sure. seven, ten movies sort of thing. Does that make sense? So, like, yeah. harness the star power. Like, you don't want to miss the latest adventure from these five superheroes that you like, but not make it that everything needs to be leading up to it all the time. You don't need to have seen 14 movies to right. understand. Yeah. Exactly. I appreciate that's that. That's something that I appreciate, too, and that's also something that that 
did, I don't know if bother is the right word, but I did take note of in Captain Marvel. This one felt particularly reliant on people having seen a lot of the other movies. Well, in particular, Guardians of the, the first Guardians of the Galaxy, just in terms of who, what some the of the Kree are. Yeah, like the aliens yeah. are, and and I and I dimly remembered that, but like I, I you know, if people are going to go see it, I would say maybe watch the first Guardians of the Galaxy just to kind of reorient uh, yourself with everything. Um, so yeah, I think Richard, the, what if I read the Wikipedia page for the first Guardians of the Galaxy? <laughs> yeah, well, that you're fine. Or you can yeah. you can read a piece that I wrote on VanityFair.com <gasps> of everything you need to know before watching. That Captain sounds Marvel. even better. There you it go. will tell you what a Kree is, what a Skrull is. I did recommend watching, if you have time, I recommend watching Guardians of the Galaxy and the Avengers um, those two. And maybe Captain Captain America First Avenger if you're feeling. And then I also recommended a couple of comic books that if you want to, but I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> but I do think that like, no, there's like tiers to how much prep you want to do. And I think the bottom tier is like maybe read this article. And then if you want to rewatch a movie or two, and then if you want to read some comics, I think they're running for like, you can get them for free. Some of the Kelly Sue DeConnick's Captain Marvel comics are free on Comixology right now as part of a promo of like, hey, you watching this movie? Want to read this book? Um, so there you go. But yeah, I, I I both agree and disagree because I, every single person I've talked to has found the opening of Captain Marvel extremely disorienting. And I will not disagree with that. But I think that part of that is by design to help you put you into Carol's disorientation. I think you can eventually understand like what a Cree is and what a scroll is, you know what I mean? Without needing to read up on it, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just because I already <laughs> knew. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, and I, and I know that it sounds silly just to even say those sentences. Uh, a couple of things I want to talk about. I am frankly chilled to the bone by how good Samuel Jackson DH looks in this movie. It is terrifying to me. Like the implications of how easy it is now to manipulate an image, you know? Uh, yeah. Is it, like, get, remarkably better than, like, Michael Douglas and Ant-Man? Or, I know they've hugely, done a times. Wow. Hugely better. Um, there's times when, like, Samuel Jackson's running down a hallway, and you're like, oh, that's a 70-year-old man. I see. But otherwise, like, <laughs> no, no. You know, um, it's not as successful in Clark Gregg, and honestly, I think that that's because they gave him this, like, weird tint in hair um, that doesn't quite work. So, like, but he's in the film far less. But Samuel Jackson looks like unsettlingly incredible throughout. So especially because we know exactly what Samuel Jackson looked like in the nineties. Like that it's, that's such a funny, I mean, Michael Douglas was a similar challenge. We remembered that so precisely, but uh, you can't get that wrong. Yeah. I think it probably helps them like more data to feed into the Mm -hmm. um, thing. And I also know that they, they had new technology that they developed for Thanos specifically. So like motion capture for Josh Brolin. So I don't know if, if that's the technology that's at play here and if that's why it looks so amazing, but um, yeah, it's, it's really incredible. But most of all, I was really worried about this movie (laughs) and I thought it looked like no fun whatsoever. So maybe because I went in with my expectations in the basement, I was like delighted by the fact that I thought it was kind of fun. There's all this like stuff with a cat and there's like rip roaring space adventure. So I, you know, it was like more enjoyable than I thought it was going to be. But um, I think people going in with like sky high expectations, might feel otherwise. I don't think it's as like, I wouldn't stump for this to be considered for best picture the way I did black Panther is the way I'll put it. But I think it, it, you know, easily stands where the first captain America did. Uh, for me, 
it's a more affecting movie than Wonder Woman was, even though I promised myself I was not going to compare those two movies. And I don't know. I'll, I'll be interested to see how it all plays out. But I, I'm glad that this movie exists, and I'm glad that that Marvel went there. And I don't think they gave it short shrift, which is a criticism that I've seen that people that some people feel like Marvel just thought putting a woman in the center of a film was enough to make it you know, oh, we checked that box, we're done. And I'm like, I don't know. I think so much thought was put into this. I really do. I feel like all this like imposter syndrome gaslighting stuff is baked into the core of this movie uh, in a way that I think was really thoughtfully done. Uh, So that's my Captain Marvel (laughs) Uh, Richard, I have a very important question. As a relatively new owner of two orange cats, how did this cat stack up? It's a good cat. Yeah, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good cat. Um, ben Mendelsohn has some really great bits of, of physical comedy surrounding the cat. Um, he's just wonderful. Um, he is really good, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, the movie has a lot of cute touches like that, um, and I appreciate it. You know, I think at, at a certain point, my brain can't process another big superhero fight scene, but I can focus in on, you know, little things like that. And I think there are enough of them in this that um, I, I remained engaged and and surprised throughout. So, yes, um, I, I, I recommend I recommend seeing it for a variety of reasons. But, uh, you know, and certainly don't believe the trolls. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor. Let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Uh, so I'm going to ask a question I think I know the answer to. Joanna said you w- you wouldn't stump for this for uh, Best Picture related Black Panther. I mean, Black Panther did make history as the first Marvel Studios movie to win Oscars and several of them. But it does feel like even if that door is open, Captain Marvel might not be the one to take advantage of it at the Oscars. I don't think so, no. No, I don't think it's that movie. You know, I think one thing that, that, that distinguished Black Panther um, beyond a lot of other Marvel, most other Marvel movies, if not all, is that, like, it had a real interesting um, political um, discussion at, at its heart and um, not necessarily one whose conclusions I agree with, uh, frankly, um, but it was still interesting to see this kind of classically, you know, Shakespearean Greek tragedy kind of thing, you know, in the context of a Marvel movie, which which I think made it stand out beyond the, you know, the, the obvious fact that it was uh, a triumph of representation both in front of and behind the camera. The, Captain Marvel um, has some of that righteousness, but it's it, it's it's much more of a personal piece. It's not it's not um, as grandly political by any means. That's probably better for them, I assume. Like Marvel coming off this huge victory, it would like it can't really be called a sophomore slump if it doesn't make it at the Oscars because it's a different thing. That seems like a wise move on their part. Yeah, and I think it, you know the the timing. I don't know why they moved up Avengers Endgame, but if they if they smelled in the wind that Captain Marvel is like at best going to be received as fine or fun. My guess is that they moved up um, the the next big Avengers crossover to sort of just like close the window on that conversation. When is it coming out again? End of April? Yeah, April 26th is when it comes out. So, um, you know, we've got some time before then, but it doesn't feel like that much time. And we'll all be talking about Game of Thrones anyway. So I don't know. Um, 
it's it's an interesting time to be alive and a genre fan. There's also Star Wars celebration coming out, so it's just like I don't know the the conversation is going to be really busy, and I I think you know if anything, Captain Marvel is going to get a little lost in all of that. I really suspect, and I'll say it again, that this is a film that people will look back on more kindly than they are looking at it now. Um, but I, you know, I could be wrong. Sometimes I fall in love with things that other people don't fall in love with, but, uh, there you go. Um, you know, that being said, like great stuff, great stuff from Ben Mendelsohn, chief of all in the cat, but also like Annette Benning, Jude Law, you know, like this is a Gemma Chan gets very little to do, but she does well with it. Like, you know, this is a, this is a stacked, cast so as is always the case with marvel these days and i'll be interested to see if brie larson's carol if the characterization changes at all um for endgame which takes place you know over 20 years after this movie so will she be a different person then I have one question to maybe close things out. I think it's really interesting just to see what people do after they win their Oscar. And Brie Larson uh, is an interesting choice for Captain Marvel. But looking back, I'm realizing a lot of the recent Best Actress winners wind up in a superhero movie one way or another. You've got uh, Kate Blanchett, who was in Thor Ragnarok. Jennifer Lawrence is in the X-Men movies. Natalie Portman was already in Thor after she before she won her Oscar and then ran away from it as fast as she could, it seemed. Um, <laughs> does this seem like a good move for Brie Larson, a neutral move, kind of what's expected of her? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we know who she is because we pay attention to this stuff and we saw Room and, you know, I watched United States with Tara and whatever. But I think that, like, this is good for, for, you know, for brand recognition. I think it remains to be seen what the Marvel movies really do for actors, honestly. I mean, I think that, like, obviously everyone's getting steady work and big paychecks and whatnot, but, like, Chris Hemsworth, as charming and as talented as he is, has really kind of failed to move past Thor. Um, We haven't really seen Chris Evans try much to do that. Um, You know, Downey Jr., I think, gave up acting years ago and is now just doing these, (laughs) um, which is fine. I don't blame him. Chris Pratt's probably the best counterargument to that. Yeah, Chris Pratt. Because his career changed a ton from Guardians. You know, and and Chris Pratt, like, we share a lot of beliefs. Religiously, politically. No. Um, yeah, Chris Pratt is like kind of the one I think that transcended. And he was probably the level of fame that Brie Larson's at now. So I, I'll be curious to see what this means for her. But I think that like being in people, you know, people knowing your name um, beyond the sort of, you know, awards obsessives and all that, like that can't hurt. I agree. I think even just like the image of her on the red carpet at the London premiere, like with her like her back in this like huge, her muscly back in this huge blue dress, standing, looking at this massive poster of her in superhero mode. That is an iconic photo. Like no matter what happens to the movie, that is an iconic photo. Um, The footage of her pushing a Jeep up the hill, you know what I mean? Like that's like all this social media stuff. Yeah, she's like, she said stuff at a luncheon about how she doesn't need to listen to old white men. And that's all the like trolls are repeating. But there's also all this other social media stuff. And she did it leading up to Room. Like this isn't new for her. Like she was all over Instagram and Twitter leading up to Room. So like Brie knows how to sort of if we want to talk about Netflix and cynicism, like Brie Larson knows how to leverage a moment, you know, in her favor. And this has made her a household name in a way that even an Oscar win, I think couldn't. So especially for a film like room or the acclaim she got for short term 12, like those are films that not that many people saw, but no matter what, you know, the box office returns on this are everyone will have seen it. And then people know who she is. 
Uh, well, to tie it back to our earlier conversation about uh, theatricality and uh, which theaters will survive, my plan is to go see this at my local Alamo Draft House at their Alamo for All screening with my baby. So hopefully I can report back on uh, what I think of Captain Marvel, which I know is what all of you are waiting for, as I admit I don't know what a scroll is and will not be able to follow this movie at all. Well, that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, next week, we're sending Joanna off to South by Southwest, so we'll be getting a dispatch from Joanna there. And Richard, you're venturing even even further south uh, for a film festival as well. Yeah, I'm going to be, I'm on the jury, or one of the juries at the uh, Guadalajara International Film Festival in Mexico. It's the biggest and I think oldest film festival in Latin America. I was really excited to be asked to be part of the uh, kind of kind of the queer lineup of films uh, to be on the jury for that. Christine Vashon is receiving an award there, so maybe I'll hang out with Christine Vashon and talk about killer films. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, you know, if any of our listeners will be there, but you know, come find me if you are. Uh, if not, I'll report back when I'm home. So, Richard, we'll hear from you when you get back. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Little Gold Men, uh, and we're all on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard, Rylas, and Joanna, Jarothis. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best shout-out to our secret sponsors goes to Joanna Robinson. You know, Marvel sends me a, a check every month to chill for them. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.